Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Again, everyone, Charles Marshall here with Phil Padalo, and we will be breaking down again a case that we addressed a few weeks ago, and that's the Guana versus Chase ruling. And Bill will also be giving some kind of intel and implications of that decision related to cancellation of instruments. And then Bill will also be addressing uh, the back end of an unlawful detainer case that he consulted uh, on in San Diego, uh, where the uh, pro-per litigant was actually able to get quite quite far with a fully trial-litigated matter. I, I think the result is – I'll leave Bill to discuss the results. Not, uh, not a surprise on the one hand – Appalling nonetheless. Today is Thursday, May 9th, 2019. And as usual, I'm broadcasting live from Southern California. And Neil will be back next week, May 16th. Uh, This show, as always, is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it's made possible solely because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So in revisiting the Guana case, uh, I'll give – some of the the breakout of the case, just for those of you who may not recall it. And for some of you, this will be uh, your first round, I would imagine, in terms of what happened in this case. This was a uh, case uh, in the Third District Court of Appeal in California. And I'll give a little bit of a backdrop on the appellate system in California. Uh, California being one of the largest states in the country. It has six state appellate districts. The third district is the largest. It actually takes up the entire northern section of California except the coastal area. So basically 
not just the northeastern part of California, but kind of even parts of the east part of western California. And then all the counties pushed up against the uh, Pacific Ocean on the west coast, they're all part of the first appellate district. And it goes all the way down this third district, goes all the way down into just north of Los Angeles. Uh, does not cover the southeastern part of the state. That's the fourth appellate district, which includes San Diego, my uh, legal home, so to speak. And so what happened in Guana is that, as with so many of these cases that are brought in California, there was a, an ugly and messy uh situation regarding a potential loan mod where the borrower thought they had certain bona fides already arranged. And then when it came to even the, the trial payment periods, which uh, a lot of borrowers will know around the country, this process is similar even if you're not in California where you make so-called trial payments. Sometimes those amounts can accord quite closely with what you'll be paying supposedly once if the loan mod is actually affirmed and that's always an open question I mean the trial payments sometimes are almost a pursuant and they're within the confines of a written agreement that looks very much like a written agreement that says these are your payments these are going to be your payments going forward of course, that doesn't always happen, and that doesn't always match up. And one of the striking things factually in this case, again, one would like to say that this is a surprise and not typical. Uh, I'm not going to say that this is entirely typical. On the other hand, this is not that unusual. I've had a couple of cases myself involving these kinds of shenanigans. What am I talking about? All of a sudden... Uh, thousands of dollars appeared in the principal balance from the trial payment period to what the homeowner was expected to sign off on at the end of the trial period. Uh, the other interesting thing about this case procedurally, one of the several interesting things about this case procedurally, is that there was discovery pending through a large part of the existence of this case. And the discovery that was pending was never forthcoming, and the uh, discovery was supposed to be coming from, from Chase, Chase Home Mortgage, in fact, uh, related to certain servicing issues, uh, including some chain of title issues. And that whole piece to this case is quite striking in that there really could have been sanctions motions visited upon defendant Chase in this case. That never happened, and in essence, the appellate court ratified the lack of compliant discovery in the case. On the other hand, one of the strengths of the case is we don't see this often in California anymore, but we did find it here. 
the ruling came out the way that it did, and I'll break down that momentarily as well. The ruling came down the way it did because Chase was found not to have standing, not to essentially be empowered under the deed of trust and the associated promissory note by assignment later or otherwise. In other words, that they did not have the bona fides to move forward with a non-judicial foreclosure sale. And that kind of chain of title analysis, as much as I think it's still needed and still warranted in a lot of these cases, a lot of courts are simply not entertaining it anymore. Well, this Nevada, this Nevada County and this Third District Court of Appeal did, in fact, in the event, finally do the right thing, at least at the appellate level. And when I say Nevada County, that's a county called Nevada. And it's the, uh, again, in the third appellate district of California. So it's actually, uh, unsurprisingly, a county on the Nevada border, kind of roughly speaking, uh, you know, a bit north of the uh, Tahoe area. But broadly speaking, it's in that area. Uh, So one of the, the, the critical pieces to this ruling, once the appellate court did find that Chase did not have standing to be pursuing uh, this foreclosure. And again, uh, they're, they're talking about the record as it exists, and they're taking into account that the discovery didn't, one might say, fully confirm in the event what their standing and status was. It's not as if this is a final uh, take or decision on the court. I mean, the court's making this analysis based on the record. But having found, at least for appellate purposes, and of course this is the type of issue that will be revisited back at, at, at remand, the court found that at least for appellate purposes, Chase did not have standing, and therefore uh, the cancellation of instruments uh, cause of action that was pled along with wrongful foreclosure and slander of title that was pled along with wrongful foreclosure, that those two supporting causes of action needed to be remanded as well. It's also important to note that this is a post-auction case. So consistent with the line of cases after Ivanova, and this is not to say that there are not cases where chain of title uh, analysis has actually, at least at the demure stage, which is where this was, remember demure in California's motion to dismiss, at least at the demure stage where chain of title analysis is essentially held to be applicable and there can be a preliminary finding by the court at least for demure purposes, that the defendant, servicer, or nominal trust, the defendants on the other side don't have standing to pursue the non-judicial foreclosure they are pursuing. Uh, It's important to appreciate that 
while even I've had some cases as recently as last year go through on this basis, and I have one that uh, as to essentially a declaratory judgment, which is similar to cancellation of instruments, that's going to trial currently, and these are pre-auction cases. But remember, this is at the uh, demure stage. So having survived a demure on a chain of title analysis in California, you may still find as a litigant or an attorney for a litigant that you're going to get knocked out at the, at the motion for summary judgment phase. That is to say, only where the property has actually gone to sale at a non-judicial foreclosure auction can Ivanova be, be said to fully apply. And I think it's legitimate to continue to make the argument, and I, I do so here in California, that the pre-auction scenario is not entirely settled. Yes, there is law now. There are several cases uh, which support the post-Ivanova position that chain of title analysis is vitiated, if not altogether irrelevant, when the property has gone to sale. But, again, that's not entirely the case yet in California. Uh, but Quana, like the other cases before it, where foreclosure appellants have won, they've won on some procedural issues, and they've won in some post-auction scenarios, including this, this case. So it's important to note that with the cancellation of instruments and slander of title being remanded as well, it, it would seem to be, and, and just superficial analysis on the part of a layperson looking at this would say, look, if the wrongful foreclosure uh, cause of action is remanded, in other words, appellate wins on that, because of a chain of title defect, because of the preliminary finding that Chase, in this case, doesn't have standing to proceed with the uh, foreclosure, it should be a given that cancellation cancellation of instruments and slander title would go through. However, there have been a number of cases, not tons, but some, where you'll get a reversal of maybe quiet title, maybe uh, wrongful foreclosure, uh, something going to title issues, and yet the cancellation of instruments and associated uh, other causes of action slander of title being a tort for us, that those won't go through, they won't be remanded. Well, here, the court did honestly the only logical thing. They simply made uh, a simple holding at the end of the case, establishing that, yes, when the uh, wrongful foreclosure cause of action is reversed, as here, cancellation of instruments and slander title should be reversed also because, of course, those causes of action are directly related to uh, the wrongful foreclosure scenario. In fact, the exact disposition here follows. The judgment is reversed regarding the wrongful foreclosure cause of action. 
It is also reversed regarding the cancellation of instrument cause of action as it pertains to the assignment of the deed of trust. The notice of default, the substitution of trustee, the notice of trustee sale, and the trustee's deed upon sale. In other words, those are all the recorded instruments that Chase was relying on to proceed with the sale. The court having found that they weren't empowered to proceed with the sale, logically they realized cancellation of instruments cause of action needs to go through. Uh, the court also found, as they say, in addition, the judgment is reversed regarding the slander of title cause of action as it pertains to the recording of the notice of default and it, then it repeats the recorded documents. Because, of course, that's where slander of title uh, is pled. It's pled on the basis that all these documents being recorded, which, of course, are public documents, is essentially slandering what should be good title on the part of the borrower. Uh, so there you have it. Bill has some uh, interesting input on this, so I'm going to turn uh, show over to him to address that. And uh, Bill, if you would uh, let the let the, the you know the borrowers on the call and just the uh, the those who uh, who are here today on uh, listening to the show, uh, you have a take on cancellation of instruments, and it would be. Useful, I think, for our listeners to have that take. No, oh, well, well, thanks, Charles. Uh, yeah, nice analysis. Um, you know why this Guanas decision, as I mentioned on the last show, why this is so um, exciting, so to speak, even though it's an unpublished opinion. No one, the homeowners can't really use it as a citation or whatnot. Is really that the court yeah, kind of gave a, uh, a roadmap uh, on on the cancellation issue now. If you take this on a broader scale, um, and this is why I love the cancellation expungement strategy, uh, when, you, when you take a hard look at this, is that on a broader scale, when the court says, listen, you have a cause of action to cancel these instruments, uh, that if Chase didn't have the authority to do what they did and they executed these documents, uh, they're saying you, you, know, you have this cause to cancel. Well, there's, you know, literally millions of documents out there and all over California in the land records where uh, critical documents being, number one, the assignment is typically the first one that needs to be recorded to get to the, as a prerequisite, to get to the next uh, substitution of trustee, notice of default, so on and so forth. When you look at those documents, there's millions of them out there that um, you can tell uh, through a little bit of investigation uh on that document, even on the face of the document, you can tell that the parties who were executing or uh, notarizing the documents, that they weren't who they said they were. I mean, so when you have situations of, you know, officers of uh, entities that have been dead for, you know, 10 years that are signing as officers and the squiggle marks and the notary issues and all that kind of thing, you do a deep dive into that document itself and create the... Uh, the case to sort of quarantine what you really want to do. You don't want to take these documents into a broader context of a foreclosure. You want to isolate that document, and you want to take it into a declaratory action and, and stick to the four corners of the malfeasance or whatever occurred in that execution of the document and put that case together to simply cancel it. And that's really going to dictate what happens uh, thereafter, because if that, if that one document uh, that was executed by Linda Green, you know, for, from Doc X, for example, one of the most notorious robo-signers in the whole scandal. And these documents are still floating around, and they're still being relied on to this day. 
So anyway, you get that document uh, canceled. Just simply, it's a nullity. It has no legal effect. It's void because of the malfeasance or whatnot, as you point out in the case. Then logic has it that everything else that follows in the chain of title on the in the property records is is void by operation of law, being the substitution of trustee notice of default, and those are going to you know lead to the slander of title claims and uh, so on and so forth. So. It's real important, I think, and I, again, I'm not the attorney here, and you can chime in on this, but just from what I'm understanding and what I'm seeing is that this is sort of a two-step process. You you isolate that document, you, you attack uh, that document in state court by identifying uh, the parties who, who prepared it, which are a lot of times the law firms that are located within the states of the foreclosure proceeding, for example, and you target the notaries and everyone who's got their uh, fingerprints, so to speak, all over that document, and then get that and then proceed to your uh, claims and cause of action, whether that be quiet title, slander, and things of that nature, because, you know, it, it's so critical to really kind of, it, it's sort of like shooting with a, like a sniper here rather than a shotgun approach. And uh, and I think it, it's, it's a more cost-effective way to, to maybe attack this stuff than to broad-scale discovery and throwing all these claims under the sun uh, to, against the, the servicers or whomever. Um, it gets very expensive, and most people just simply can't afford that. So it makes sense to, to really look at it from a, a, a very um, – cost-effective way to do this, and I think this Guana case really uh, points to this as being a viable uh, way to attack. So that's that's why I'm really uh, kind of excited about that. But um, I wish we had 45 minutes. I mean, we're always running out of time here. But I just wanted to touch on the um, UD case in San Diego that I uh, we talked about last week in the LaCour case. And, uh, yeah. um, yeah, and uh, how that ended up is, you know, I've had, I'm sure it's no shock to the listeners, but uh, the court sided obviously with U.S. Bank, and um, but one of the, you know, the sleazy tactics that they do, and this is sort of a warning to all, um, and I and I know the uh, the party here was pro se, and he did an, an admirable job, but still, uh, lessons to be learned. Um, the witness who they were prepared, they, they named two witnesses on the witness list for trial. And the one witness that um, uh, the attorney made offer of proof that was going to attest to the documents and to their authenticity, he claimed she was, again, the a custodian for U.S. Bank. And therefore, uh, based on her testimony of these uh, documents, the court would accept them uh, into evidence. And therefore, that would be the end of the story and then pretty easy case, uh, case closed, so to speak. Well, upon sort of exposing that this witness was actually the listing real estate agent for the uh, foreclosed property, um, suddenly that witness vanished and had to take a trip overseas. And so they were no longer on the radar and, and didn't want to come within 100 feet of the courthouse, obviously. And so then the next witness that they had on there, he too um, suddenly vanished and um, was no longer available to testify. And so they came in with a last-second witness that they flew in from Dallas, Texas. And <clears throat> this party, again, with no prior knowledge of who he is or what his background is, and he's not on the witness list, the court allows him to uh, take the stand, and essentially uh, he's carrying in his back pocket a, um, a power of attorney document. And the, 
the, the those documents have to be objected to uh, strenuously because there's there's language in these things that say that their authority is is really granted only through the um, if you, well, oftentimes you'll see. Uh, that the authority granted to them is derived from an ancillary document, such as a servicing agreement or something of that nature, and it's listed right in the wording of the power of attorney document. And so when you when you object, you you, you point out where is that uh, servicing agreement? Where are these ancillary agreements to the power of attorney that grant the authority for this actual power of attorney document? That sort of thing. So it's an evidentiary issue. Anyway, court signed off on it, and uh, uh, that's now it's going to have to obviously go to appeal. So um, when that court transcript comes out, and I do a little bit of analysis analysis on it, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch upon it on a on a future show. Um, and then there's just one more thing I want to point out. It's kind of uh, not really related to this, but um, I mentioned on last week's show that I did take a trip out to New Jersey and uh, had some meetings out there with various individuals and. Um, I'm looking for you know any listener out there uh, if you're in New Jersey or if you know anybody in New Jersey and you have a, a case or you're involved in a case that was a Washington mutual loan uh, that was either securitized by WAMU or was foreclosed uh, by J.P. Morgan Chase going through the FDIC in that fact pattern. Um, if you have that type of case, uh, please give me a call or contact me um, at uh, my emails the best bill.bpia at gmail.com or you can call my uh, 800 number on my <clears throat> website um, and then the other one is if anyone has been foreclosed on in New Jersey where documents but were put uh, into the record from and typically assignments coming out of a uh, entity called Securities Connections at 240 Technology Drive in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Uh, a lot of times Aquin will use that address or the, the document will say Aquin, but anybody who has an assignment coming out of Idaho um, that was used in the case, uh, please contact me as well. And uh, we'll have a discussion about uh, uh, what this really pertains to. So, uh, any last words there, uh, Charles, as we're coming up on the half? Uh, yeah, we've got a few minutes left, and I'll just uh, basically revisit the the UD uh, you were just talking about uh, briefly. Uh, one important aspect to that, which you've really highlighted, and it sounds like it was very straightforward for these UD plaintiffs, which my favorite word again, <laughs> however reluctantly, institutional, these institutional UD plaintiffs, sounds like they were very readily able with this judge to simply essentially fob off not having the proper witnesses, which I, I don't need you to speak uh, uh, in detail at all about this. Um, if you could just confirm that those witnesses on the witness list, I mean, they had been there for some time, and there was at least some potential to do depositions or discovery related to them, or what was the status of that? We're talking about the witnesses who didn't show. Yeah, they were they were named as the, the tr witnesses for trial, and uh, they were uh, given for quite some time ahead. And, 
And uh, so the preparation and the investigation on those individuals was done and, and ready to go. That's where, you know, we, we come up with the information that we did, and suddenly um, they vanish. <laughs> right. I mean, see, that's a critical point that uh, our listeners really need to process here. And I, I can tell you if a UD defendant goes into these cases, just a regular guy or gal, which the vast majority of us are, uh, what's going to happen if they try to pull a last-minute switcheroo on providing a witness, particularly one that wasn't vetted and wasn't um, on a list uh, for uh, presentation at trial? That witness would be disregarded by the court in a number of cases. Some judges might like well, absolutely. that witness, and, but I think a lot of a lot of judges would not. So. The whole process is set up so that you can vet witnesses in advance to let them in at the last second here is a disrespect and, a, and frankly, an abuse of the system. So that's all we have time for today, Bill. Appreciate your time as always. And Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.